like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. Thank you so much for tuning in to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Lindsay Hamilton about ethnography and humanism. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. What a privilege. Can you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Well, I work in a, a management school. I'm based at um, the York Management School in the north of England. So I'm actually an organisational scholar and I specialise in organisational ethnography, which is the study of people at work or doing organisation and management jobs. But actually, my background is interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary, you might say. So I have a first degree in religious studies and then I did a master's degree in uh, Victorian literature. And I came to management only when I did my PhD uh, at Keele University in Staffordshire, which is in the Midlands of England. And through that long-winded process, I found that um, ethnography really shone out to me as a discipline that I could use in multiple, multiple organisations and settings where different people came together for whatever reason. So it's a word I haven't actually heard before, but could you give us a definition of ethnography? and humanism. Yeah, so ethnography is um, quite literally people writing. So ethno being people and graphy being writing. So the way that I think about this is both as a noun and a verb. The noun part of it uh, refers to the fact that out of this process of people writing you get a, a research method you also get a an artifact of that research which is a document an account of people's lives and in the verb sense of the word it is that people are literally writing they are acting to produce accounts to produce stories and usually these stories are about other people and that's where the humanism comes in because what ethnographies have traditionally done is focus on other people, other humans, and tell their stories and create life worlds on paper, which evoke a particular place or organisation in my own sphere of work, or perhaps um, groups of people that we don't know very much about. And historically, there have been some really interesting ethnographies done of lots of different types of people, including playboy bunnies, uh, milkmen, litter pickers, street cleaning, um, booksellers, you name it. There's an ethnography of, of all different sorts of people. What was it that inspired your interest in ethnology? Well, I was supervised for my PhD by uh, Professor Paul Willis, who um, just recently retired from Princeton University. Um, he came to Keele University about a decade ago and started work there. And it was only through connecting with him and finding out more about his work that I started to become interested in ethnography and what it could do for me. Paul Willis, of course, is famous for having written um, the book Learning to Labour, which is an account of the counterculture in a school and it's set in England and it focuses on a group of what we might call naughty boys in school who 
don't want to do the work seem to be rebellious and they have their own set of cultural rules about how they're going to behave and it breaks their heart to do any writing. Um, Paul Willis gets under the skin of these boys and he tries to work out what it is that makes them tick and although that account was produced quite a long time ago now it's still one of the classics and I was privileged to be supervised by him and to learn about cultural studies and the study of how people come together to make sense of the world and to create worlds for themselves. Yeah, it's quite interesting, really, because when you talk about writing, writing has only been around for about 5,000 years, really, and before that it was sort of more verbal sort of history. And it's interesting when you talk about mainly young children, they don't sort of like to write things down. But I think now with technology, you can basically just speak into your laptop and everything you say is printed out. But it'd be probably a lot more helpful for younger children now. We probably wouldn't have as many naughty boys and naughty girls, would we? <laughs> Possibly. I think um, Paul Willis was talking about the social conditions that prime certain children to be labelled naughty. Uh, in his reading of the world, which was a Marxist lens, he was saying really that schools were preparing these young children for a lifetime on the shop floor in dead-end jobs, packaging and manufacturing, and they weren't encouraged to think or innovate or to be themselves. And you're quite right in that as a culture, we have, I suppose, an emphasis on text and language. And those that don't necessarily want to use those techniques are sometimes marginalised. And it's the same, actually, within the research community, too, because ethnography as a discipline has been quite heavily focused on text uh, in terms of analysing documents that you might find or interviewing people and getting their words and transcribing those words, uh, as well as observing and participating with them as they go through their daily lives. So in the process of that, we also, as a discipline, have been somewhat guilty of having privileged text and language over other forms of interaction. That's a really good point. Could you explain about the ecology of ethnographic methods? Yeah, I suppose uh, when I think about methods, I see them as political. I don't see methods as something which is um, value neutral, value free. We're always describing but also creating what we're trying to describe when we write about the world. So when I talk about an ecology of methods, I'm thinking particularly about grouping together techniques and styles of work that take account of the fact that there are unequal power relations at play in society and in the work that we do to try and describe that society. Uh, the work that I've done with Nick Taylor, for instance, I mean, she was at uh, Adelaide, she was at Flinders University in Adelaide, so I've never actually met Nick Taylor, my co-author, but we've worked together on talking this through in depth. We've spent months, years, in fact, talking about identity, politics, culture, and how methods are bound up with that, and how when we're working, we are trying all the time not to avoid them, but to acknowledge unequal power, and also to try and create a situation where we're making accounts that show greater empathy for others, or people who are marginalised. And in the work that I've done with Nick, we've specifically focused on other species that are perhaps marginalised from our normal accounts. So the ecology idea thinks about how we could 
mix and match our research style, our way of thinking to better account for different capacities, different behaviours, different agencies, and start to think about putting methods together that really acknowledge those differences rather than try to shoehorn people down or other creatures down a very simple trajectory of relying on interviews, for instance, or participant observation or documentary analysis. I don't think that fits the bill for a post-human world. And I think that's the world that we probably want to inhabit. Definitely. So now there's tended to be a focus on the human at the cost of understanding human and animal relations, hasn't there? I think so. And actually, in my own work, um, I am culpable in that because my PhD thesis was based on ethnographic fieldwork with um, farm animal veterinary surgeons. I spent three years following them about and going on routine visits and emergency call outs. And I spent a lot of time with them literally in the field. And I was in a way ignoring the animal part of that transaction because I didn't really have any methods to help me include them in my account. So my PhD is about farm animal vets and how they go about making sense of the world and how they uh, code their behaviors. For example, getting covered in cow muck and mess on the farm how they turn that into a badge of honour or how they turn it into a badge of masculinity. The fact is that they are using that as a symbolic resource to brand themselves almost as being superior in their workplace. And yet I never really thought at the time about the animal that was producing that muck and that mess and beyond the byproducts of the farmyard, I never really thought through how I could include those species because it seemed to me an alien concept. It was only following that time um, in the last decade where I've really turned my attention to how I might develop tools that open up these hidden worlds by looking at how things, people and others, and I include in that other species that inhabit and co-create our world, how I might actually turn my attention more to these mutual interminglings, interdependencies. So for instance, a better question from my perspective now would be, how is it that vets and animals work together to produce economic value? And how do they interact in the field? And can I do anything with those observations to think about the bigger story, the bigger power relations? What story can I tell by observing those interactions as opposed to just ignoring cattle or ignoring any species because I don't have the methods to take account of them. So it's not about me trying to invent new science that will enable me to have a special view of the world, but it's about me trying to pay closer attention to the power imbalances and the different forms of behaviour and agency that I see in front of me. It's about trying to include rather than exclude on the basis of just not understanding. I think there's an ethical question here. It's not just a, a logical imperative that we want to get as much information and knowledge as we can, but there's an ethics of research, I think, which which means that we have to try and listen out for the voices of our research subjects, whether they are speaking to us or not. And that involves taking some quite interesting steps into evolving, innovating, and thinking through the ramifications of doing our work differently. Yes, well, you sort of did mention about the ethics of it. So how could researchers conduct 
different forms of field work and writing to include animals more fruitfully? I think that's a really great question. I think it's a difficult to answer question. Uh, I'm starting from a critical, liberal, emancipatory perspective, I suppose. And, and to that end, I think one has to be open to uh, literary innovations or artistic innovations, different forms, perhaps, of thinking about data. So instead of thinking about writing up accounts of how things look to us, it might be that we could start to use some of the techniques that other disciplines have been really comfortable with over the years. Um, ethnodrama, for instance, which is acting out people's life stories in a dramatic setting. It's a different way of presenting the world, which doesn't rely on books and articles. There are lots of other things too we can use, particularly audio-visual techniques. What's interesting about, for instance, visual techniques is that we can actually include the sight element in our work. We can show perhaps people and dogs coming together, telling stories together and interacting together. And that can become a form of data in its own right. I know that there are people who have done artistic exhibitions where they've actually encouraged those who are viewing the exhibitions to join in, to help ask questions or to make observations. And that extra layer of data is added into the overall impression that the researcher is getting by looking at the interactions between perhaps humans and dogs on screen. So perhaps there's a way of blending arts and uh, cultural artefacts with the techniques that we are now rapidly developing through technologies like Zoom, but also other technologies, high-tech blended techniques such as head-mounted cameras, for instance, and large data sets. There's lots and lots we can do with that if we just start to think about what it is that we actually want to know and how we can know it. And some of the things that we ask, perhaps we can't know, but it's not an excuse to give up, I think. And Paul Willis used to say to me, well, you have to set yourself answerable questions. It's no good asking yourself whether swans have souls, because we will never know the answer to that. And we don't have the techniques to find out. And he's right in some ways. We'll probably never know whether swans have souls. But for me, there is an ethical question that since I don't know the answer to that, and I probably will never know, I shouldn't assume that they don't have souls. So I should perhaps go on as though I, I'm trying to correct the phase of hyperhumanism, which has existed, that's put human beings at the centre of our research, as though they are the only species that matter because they are the only ones that will talk back. Yes, especially when you were speaking about uh, the swans having souls, it reminded me incident a friend of mine had when she was quite young she went to a school and was taught by nuns had a day off school and the next day when she attended school a very strict nun said to her why weren't you at school yesterday and she said well my dog died and she said well that's no reason to have a day off school because they don't have souls and my friend said well if my dog doesn't have a soul that's more of a reason for me to have a day <laughs> off school <laughs> She wasn't able to answer that. <laughs> I agree. And although that is quite a lighthearted example, it's a very good example of the humanism that dominates in our cultural world. It's the kind of uh, humanism which segregates us as the prime mover from the rest of 
the taxonomy of creatures and it's something which has permeated philosophy and it's permeated social science for millennia actually and it is i think perhaps part of the human way of seeing and cre creating knowledge that we seek to taxonomize and to create boundaries and borderlines between what we do and what others do and my work is about developing tools that actually try and challenge those borderlines and to challenge the realist classical notion that we are at the peak of some sort of created order by which we are the most powerful and as such we have the most responsibility for creating narrative to me that doesn't seem quite right i want to see witness and translate different types of acting agency to try and bring that into the notion of society itself so that we see society in its original meaning socius the latin meaning companion i don't see why that needs to be restricted to human beings because a dog which uh, dies and is mourned is just as much a companion or a socius as any other creature so i think there's something here about seeking out the benefits and possibilities of a new way of viewing human beings. Yes, definitely. So what type of guidelines do you think there should be for this type of research? Well, from my point of view, I don't like to make too many rules about what ethnography is or can be, but I would guard against um, a, a slight tendency that we have in academia to put labels on our methods and try to colonize space around those labels. And one of the labels which has emerged recently is multi-species ethnography. And while that's a useful handy tool that enables some people to include animals in their accounts and to label that for the wider community, a lot of these accounts actually end up reinstating the human as the most important. And it's unfortunate that multi-species ethnography has yet to be defined and such, such a sort of vagary around that terminology means that it's possibly being pulled in directions which just tell a human story all over again. Rather than seeking to deconstruct or to challenge or to think about co-creation, it ends up being a story about how important people are all over again. So I think there's great potential for innovation and change. There are possibilities, there are new elements, and, and there's a possibility of deconstructing old paradigms, old realistic, positivistic, humanistic, classical type ways of seeing the world which rely on facts. I think if we start to think through the possibilities of methods as political and start to think through the deconstruction of binaries and start to think about animals within social science that's where we will come up with new techniques and they might be an ecology they might be a hybrid of different techniques that already exist or they might be completely new techniques who knows what technology will open up for us but what i don't think is helpful is to reinstate the human story the human account and call it something that it isn't. Yes, oh, definitely. So what are the benefits, do you think, of this research for human and non-human animals? Well, I think if you are setting out with the objective of including 
other species in your work, then you're actually hopefully going to acknowledge the power imbalances, the difference in benefits that accrue to different species when they come together. Now, in my own work, I've obviously looked at business and organisation context. So I've been thinking particularly about the disproportionate rewards that people and animals might have in, for example, farming. I'm not a vegan myself, but I know that an awful lot of vegan critiques talk about the difficulty of accepting that these economic rewards accrue exclusively to the human and that is something that is problematic for me and I I wrestle with and I think about and I, I don't necessarily accept that animals are unquestioning dupes that they don't have some sort of acting capacity here which which pulls me back from advocating a vegan standpoint I think actually they do kick back occasionally So what I've noticed in my observations in the field, for instance, uh, looking at hill shepherding in the UK's Lake District, is that actually the sheep themselves are not stupid. They don't get exploited in a one-way traffic. The power relationship between the shepherd and the sheep is actually quite sinuous and difficult to track at times. The sheep create a lot of work for the humans. They kick walls down. They get into difficulty and have to be rescued they have capacities and behaviors which are unique to them and they're living in a semi-wild state they're not being rounded up every day and touched they're not handled very often this gives me a very different way of thinking about farming and it's not the factory farming label that you might otherwise assume is what's happening through intensification all over the globe so i think we have to be careful when we think about the different power relationships and look at the specifics through ethnographic field techniques, look at the specifics of that particular farm, look at those particular animals and people in interaction, rather than generalizing. I think that's quite important. So for me, the hill farm, the the shepherding story, is one where the power imbalance between people and animals is a lot less easy to define than, for example, in a chicken factory or a chicken farm, places that I've observed at first hand and where the human is most definitely in control and is definitely dominating and rules that particular setting in a mechanistic way. So I think we need to take more attention to detail and have a look at how these species interact in different settings and that I think is what I'm going to continue to develop. So um, are there possibilities to create new forms of ethnography? I think so. It's difficult. We are on a tightrope without a net in some ways. We are feeling our way um, and we don't have any strict guidelines but I think those of us that are trying to experiment with these different techniques are drawing on ethnography's long history of critical liberal emancipatory objectives and coupling that with a sensitivity which has always existed in ethnography which is a literary and artistic slant to the work and although we are a million miles away from the the scholar sitting behind the tent flaps in some island culture where they are very much the scribe amongst the tribe we're no longer thinking those dynamics are as appropriate since post-colonialism has opened our eyes to, to what that actually looks like in terms of the authority of the researcher and the people 
who are being described and being talked about. So I think what we need to do is to take that a step further, take that heritage a step further, and to think about documenting and, and listening for and to a multiplicity of voices. And I think for me, that means maybe experimenting with different kinds of writing, uh, perhaps thinking about advocacy, which is not something I've I've done before, possibly thinking about including more emotion in my work. That's also something I haven't experimented with to date because one tends to assume that emotion and science are two separate spheres and we shouldn't confuse the two. And there are increasingly voices which are advocating a lot more of that reflection and uh, emotive content, the effect of what we are writing, and to be a bit more honest and open about our feelings in observing and witnessing and translating the life worlds of others, be they human or otherwise. So although I think this is an emergent phase in the development of the kind of methods I would like to see, um, I'm very willing to experiment with some of these different techniques. And actually, I'm starting to think that the COVID lockdown is a golden opportunity for experimenting with things such as collaborative storytelling. It's just one of the examples that I've come across recently. And people get together through a screen and they talk to each other and interact and talk about their animals. And the animals can be brought into that through description and narrative and accounts can be created in this way, mediated through these new technologies, which we haven't really explored to date because we haven't needed to. And now we're all working independently in our separate lockdown environments. It's actually giving me some food for thought to think about how I might innovate those techniques a little bit further to bring in, if possible, different ways of constructing data, different ways of constructing research questions and designs, and different ways of interacting globally Globally with people who have an interest in trying to bring animals into the picture somehow. Yes, you, you're right actually about uh, being right in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. People are really turning to non-human animals because a lot of people are stuck at home and they're just sort of realising how valuable their companionship is. But yeah, something you mentioned before as well about veganism and I think that you don't really, I feel that you don't have to be vegan yourself to promote a vegan standpoint because really when you look at it, I mean it is the most humane diet there is on the planet just in my opinion and you know, I think that um, even, even people who eat meat can still have a humane uh, standpoint on that as well and they could eat free range animals like we were speaking before about the sheep being free range and there's there's been an awful lot of people who have changed over to only eating free range eggs instead of the, the battery eggs because well in Australia anyway we have Animals Australia who have done an incredible job with, with advertising about the conditions farm animals are, are living in and I, I think that a lot of people just the general population had no idea about that before these advertisements went TV. You know, what is it like over in the UK? Um, it's difficult. We are on a tightrope without a net in some ways. We are feeling our way um, and we don't have any strict guidelines. But I think those of us that are trying to experiment with these different techniques are drawing on ethnography's long history of critical, liberal, emancipatory objectives. 
and coupling that with a sensitivity which has always existed in ethnography, which is a literary and artistic slant to the work. And although we are a million miles away from the, the scholar sitting behind the tent flaps in some island culture where they are very much the scribe amongst the tribe, we're no longer thinking those dynamics are as appropriate since post-colonialism has opened our eyes to, to what that actually looks like in terms of the authority of the researcher and the people who are being described and being talked about. So I think what we need to do is to take that a step further, take that heritage a step further, and to think about documenting and, and listening for and to a multiplicity of voices. And I think for me, that means maybe experimenting with different kinds of writing, uh, perhaps thinking about advocacy, which is not something I've, I've done before, possibly thinking about including more emotion in my work. That's also something I haven't experimented with to date because one tends to assume that emotion and science are two separate spheres and we shouldn't confuse the two. And there are increasingly voices which are advocating a lot more of that reflection and uh, emotive content, the effect of what we are writing, and to be a bit more honest and open about our feelings in, in observing and witnessing and translating the life worlds of others, be they human or otherwise. So although I think this is an emergent phase in the development of the kind of methods I would like to see, um, I'm very willing to experiment with some of these different techniques. And actually, I'm starting to think that the COVID lockdown is a golden opportunity for experimenting with things such as collaborative storytelling. It's just one of the examples that I've come across recently. And people get together through a screen and they talk to each other and interact and talk about their animals and the animals can be brought into that through description and narrative and accounts can be created in this way mediated through these new technologies which we haven't really explored to date because we haven't needed to and now we're all working independently in our separate lockdown environments it's actually giving me some food for thought to think about how I might innovate those techniques a little bit further to bring in if possible, different ways of constructing data, different ways of constructing research questions and designs, and different ways of interacting globally with people who have an interest in trying to bring animals into the picture somehow. Yes, you, you're right actually about this being right in the middle of the um, COVID-19 pandemic. People are really turning to non-human animals because a lot of people are stuck at home and they're just sort of realising how valuable uh, their companionship is. But, you know, something you mentioned before as well about veganism, and I think that you don't really, I feel that you don't have to be vegan yourself to promote a vegan standpoint because really when you look at it, I mean, it is the most humane diet there is on the planet, just in my opinion. And you know, I think that even even people who eat meat can still have a humane uh, standpoint on that as well. And they could eat free range animals, like you were speaking before about the sheep being free range. 
And there's there's been an awful lot of people who have changed over to only eating free-range eggs instead of the, the battery eggs because, well, in Australia anyway, we have Animals Australia who have done an incredible job with, with advertising about the conditions farm animals are, are living in. And I, I think that a lot of people, just the general population, had no idea about that before these advertisements went to TV. You know, what is it like over in the UK? Well, in the UK, there there is a huge emphasis now upon local food, sort of uh, emphasising the short supply chains, emphasising localism, emphasising the farmer as a important stakeholder rather than the supermarket. There's quite a lot of activism actually around that. And one of the food trends that I've been looking at recently is uh, unprocessed, unpasteurized dairy products, so particularly raw milk. And I've been thinking about how that interacts with ideas of being vegan. And um, I've been trying to research why it is that people choose raw milk and what they're actually seeking. And what I've noticed is, and this is interesting to me, they're not promoting a vegan lifestyle because they're seeking animal products. However, they are seeking a connection to cows. So they're going to the farm to buy that product very often. Not all consumers, but some of them, a, a significant quantity of those consumers are looking for cows and calves. They want to see where their food has come from. They want to see that connection. And I think that's a form of intimacy and entanglement, which helps them to retain a degree of confidence in what they're buying and eating, and also helps them to feel that what they're actually doing is not promoting animal suffering so it's an it's an element of witnessing and advocacy i suppose through making a food choice i think that's quite an interesting story because it's a very small proportion of those who drink milk choosing that particular food and yet it, it's interesting for so many reasons because it's bringing that food chain closer together so i think that's a positive and when we're making observations of different cultures and different societies across the globe, of course, we bring those cultural expectations to bear. And that's something that's really uh, come out of the COVID news coverage, because obviously there's been lots of discourse about wet markets and wildlife trade. And we're seeing that almost anew because it's it's become important to us as humans and of course, that is a humanist response to something, which I feel runs quite a lot deeper than that. And and actually, the news coverage has tended to focus on the damage that these foods or animals have done to us, whereas actually very little of the coverage has thought about how confronting it is to see certain species trafficked and, and moved around and treated as food. So I think... We're still feeling our way. We're still putting ourselves at the centre of a lot of these narratives of what foods we should have and, and what we shouldn't have. And we still make those value judgments on a day-to-day -day basis. But clearly, there's a quite a lot more work to be done in academia to get to the bottom of it and to, to work out what it is that we as consumers want. I suppose I don't choose to live a vegan life, but I do consider very carefully what food I do select for me and my family and there are certain foods which I would not accept and I don't 
think I would ever accept actually. So although that's a taxonomy and I was suggesting earlier that that's a problem and it's rooted in humanism, I do also acknowledge that there's a little bit of a complexity here. There's a number of paradoxes which emerge from being human, which is about the mess of choice, the mess of everyday life. And these are our vernacular little moments, our worlds, our everyday choices and experiences. And it's so difficult to research and find out about them. But I think that's what we do need to do if we're going to make any progress in understanding why there are particular issues around certain modes of consumption and food production. Is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't already covered? Only um, to reiterate that I feel very privileged to have had this conversation. I think it's very important that uh, philosophy and other disciplines like management and like ethnography come together to have these important and pressing debates about what matters and what we should do and how we should behave. I would also say that um, I'm continuing to develop what Donna Haraway calls ethnographies of connection. And I'm interested in the intersections of beings and things. And uh, I would in invite any of the listeners to contact me if they have any ideas for working together on projects like that. I'm always interested to hear ideas and suggestions and possibly work together on new forms of writing, new forms of data production, or indeed just providing a bit of advice on multi-species work in general. So thank you very much. Thank you very much for coming onto the programme today. It's been great having you. It's been my genuine pleasure and thank you very much. I've been speaking with Dr Lindsay Hamilton about ethnography and humanism. That's all we have time for. Hope you've enjoyed the programme. <laughs>